welcome you to our time of worship, especially uh, to friends and family members who might be here for our graduation recognition. Thank you for joining with us today. Uh, for many of us, I'm sure as you saw those pictures on the screen, perhaps it, it brought up thoughts of uh, how you've seen these children grow up before you. Uh, I know for me, uh, at least one of those graduates, I remember when he was a baby and uh, how he's grown. And uh, this morning I was telling uh, Nick and Karen, or telling Todd and Karen Carney, uh, seeing his picture, Nick Carney's reminded me of one of our very first experiences here at Bloomfield. Uh, Parker had gone down to spend the night with Nick and uh, came back with a, a very uh, tall tale. In essence, what had happened was Parker had shot Nick and I with a BB gun. And, um, you know, you'll shoot your eye out. Well, he tried to shoot somebody else's eye out. And so I was telling them this morning that, uh, one, I'm thankful that Nick still has both eyes. And two, I'm thankful that he's the one who's going to have a weapon in the military and not my son. Um, so, but uh, perhaps you have thought of some memories this morning uh, as you've seen these graduates, those who have graduated, they're about to graduate. Uh, graduation is really a time in our life that's, that's kind of a marker. It's something that we look forward to, and it's something that we look back on. It's a significant uh, time in our life. It's one of those things that really uh, uh, sets in the timeline of our life as a significant event. Uh, we are in the midst of studying the book of Exodus, and we have come to a point where there's a very significant event that is taking place. Uh, the book of Exodus is the story of how God delivers His people from their slavery and captivity in Egypt. If you know much about the story of God's people, uh, you may know that there was a time when they became slaves in Egypt. They spent hundreds of years there, and they cried out to God to send them a deliverer, uh, that He would rescue them. And God sends them Moses. Uh, Moses leads the people out of their slavery and captivity. Uh, God does all types of miraculous things to make this happen. And we see them uh, then released from their slavery and going towards this land of promise. This land that God had told them would be flowing with uh, milk and honey. Uh, that was the place they were longing for, going towards, but they will have quite a journey between their time of slavery in Egypt and when they eventually enter into the promised land. And so in preparation for that journey, uh, God now has this significant event in the life of His people. Uh, they have come to Mount Sinai, and what we have seen so far is that what has happened on this mountain is that God has come down to this mountain. His very presence is on this mountain, and as such, His holiness is there. And God's holiness, He is speaking to the people. And so we've looked at how we see a picture there at Mount Sinai of the holiness of God, of the unholiness of man, and it's in that context now that God gives the Ten Commandments. Now, even if you don't know anything about the story of the people of God, you have probably heard of the Ten Commandments. And so where we find those is in Exodus chapter 20. And so today we're going to start our study. Really today is an introduction to what we'll be looking at in the coming Lord's Days as we consider each of these commandments and how they might apply to us today. And so by way of introduction today, we're just really going to look at the first couple of verses of Exodus 20, but I want to read verses 1 through 17 to give us the context here. And so out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this holy text for us today, this is the Word that we see God giving to His people there at Mount Sinai. And it says this, Exodus 20 beginning in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. If you would, pray with me. Father, I pray that You might help us to better understand Your Word today. God, You tell us in Your Word that we are to hide it in our heart that we might not sin against You. And so, Father, would You help us to hide this Word in our heart and even to make sense of it, to understand how it applies to us today and ultimately how it points us towards the Gospel of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the Ten Commandments are something that we talk a lot about in our culture. Especially, it seems, when there's times for politicians to come around and make speeches on why we should vote for them or keep voting for them. There's usually someone who will speak about the need for us to have the Ten Commandments hung up in public buildings or have monuments with the Ten Commandments on them. Some of you have the Ten Commandments written in your home, hanging up in your homes. But what I've found is that oftentimes, as much as we might believe in the need to post the Ten Commandments, that still doesn't mean we really understand what the Ten Commandments say. I was reminded of this not long ago. There was a politician in Georgia who had proposed a bill that the Ten Commandments be hung in a number of public buildings. And so in several interviews, he was speaking about this and, and was very passionate about it. Uh, he would talk about why he felt the Ten Commandments should be posted publicly, how uh, we needed to have a reminder of those commands, those commandments of God in our culture today, how we needed these for, uh, for a moral structure, for civil structure, and how he felt so much in our society had gone wrong with the removal of the Ten Commandments from so many public places. He was very passionate in what he said until the interviewer asked him a question. One reporter said, well, sir, could you tell me what the Ten Commandments are? <laughs> he said, excuse me? <laughs> so can you tell me what they are? Well, he hesitated. He said, you mean all of them? Yeah, all of them. In order? No, just in any order. And so he was a man who had spent so much time talking about why we needed to post the Ten Commandments and he struggled to say them. 
In fact, he only got three out. That's all he could remember. You see, that's not just true of politicians. It's true in our culture. Many people in our culture are aware of the Ten Commandments, but many don't know what they actually say. In fact, I read one survey just this week that said, uh, in one particular poll, that Americans were more familiar with the ingredients in a Big Mac and the characters on the Brady Bunch than they were of what the Ten Commandments actually said. Now, that's not just the culture. I'd say that's probably true of us this morning. Right now, think in your head, what are the ingredients in a Big Mac? To all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Why do we know that? I, I Honestly, I've eaten all kinds of stuff I probably shouldn't, but I've never eaten a Big Mac. I have no desire to eat a Big Mac, but I can tell you exactly what's in a Big Mac. And I'm sure the marketing and advertising folks can tell us why we can tell you that. It has been ingrained in us through advertising and through jingles. We know what's in a Big Mac. But do you know the Ten Commandments? Could you say them right now from memory, in order? I actually posed this quiz this Wednesday night to our Bible study. This will encourage you never to come. But, uh, you know, we had a little quiz there. And, and sure enough, uh, I told folks they could answer. You know, raise your hand. Each person can answer once. And sure enough, we, just, we got the Big Mac quick. But then Ten Commandments, we started off pretty good, but then we struggled. See, as much as we talk about these things, many of us don't actually know from memory what the Ten Commandments are. And even if we do know them so often, we don't actually realize, how do they relate to us today as Christians? Well, what does it mean that Christ has fulfilled the law and we're no longer under the law, and yet there are things in the law like the Ten Commandments that some should still very much apply to us today? Well, by way of introduction today, I want us to think about these things. I want us to think about the context of, of why God gave these commandments. Even this reference to the Ten Commandments is a fairly, a fairly modern reference. In the Scripture, we typically look at these as the ten words. The ten instructions from God. And I think they're very important for us. And so we're going to spend time in the coming Lord's days just walking through these Ten Commandments and just asking, well, what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about God's people? How does this apply to us today? But before we can get there, we need to understand the bigger context. We need to understand how the Ten Commandments fit into the context of God's Word to begin with. And we really need to clear up some misunderstandings in our culture and in the church today about the Old Testament and about the law. And so I want to start there with the first point you've got in your outline. And that's this that we need to understand that God gives three types of laws in the Old Testament. God gives three types of laws in the Old Testament. The civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. Now this is important because one of the great objections that's often brought up when we start talking about laws from the Old Testament is why is it that Christians are so passionate about some of the things the Old Testament says, but not about others? So for example... When we're talking about moral issues, when we're talking about issues of sexual ethics in our culture today, Christians are prone to cite certain verses from the Old Testament. And oftentimes, the pushback we get from the culture is, well, why are you so passionate about what that says, and yet you don't seem very passionate about where it talks about not wearing blended fabrics in your clothing? I mean, I'm just asking, how many of us this morning when you got up, check the tag on your jacket, your shirt, your blouse, whatever, to make sure that it wasn't made from blended fabrics. Anybody? And so, 
how does that make sense? Because the Old Testament actually has a regulation in there about not wearing cloth of blended fabrics. I'll give you another example. We also read in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 14 that we're not supposed to eat pork. Now, if you don't know this already, today we're selling pork chops and pork burgers here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. It's part of our building uh, debt fundraiser. We'd appreciate it if you would uh, purchase your lunch, dinner, maybe for the rest of the week today. You could make those purchases right outside this door. You, you can fill your week with pork. Well, how in the world do we make sense of that? Because it does tell us in Deuteronomy not to eat pork. And so what the world does, what the culture does, and what at times people in the church are tempted to do, is say, well, wait a second. If we're having a pork burger fundraiser, then obviously that verse doesn't apply. So how do these other verses apply? Wait a second, maybe we've gotten this all wrong. Let's just throw all this out. Because none of this applies to us today. Well, friends, that would be a grave mistake. And where that mistake ultimately comes from is a misunderstanding of the law to begin with. Because what we find as we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament is that you can categorize these laws. And so you have ceremonial, you have civil, and you have moral laws. So, for example, we have civil laws. Uh, Civil laws in the Old Testament were laws that governed Israel as a nation under God. Now, Israel in the Old Testament was not only a reference to the people of God, it was a reference to a state. And so in the Old Testament, you had a church state. And as a church state, they had civil laws. And these civil laws were for good reason. They needed law. They needed order. These constrained wickedness of the people. These laws taught them more about God. These laws helped them be set apart from the nations around them. And these laws were very, very strict. Far stricter than many of the civil laws we have in our culture today. I'll give you an example. Deuteronomy chapter 21 tells us about how we're to treat a rebellious son. In Deuteronomy 21, this rebellious son, I think the reference there is to more of a grown son, not a small toddler, because it talks about being, them being a glutton and a drunkard. I mean, maybe you've got a five-year-old that's a glutton and a drunkard, but I'm guessing a few years older here. And, and what it tells us specifically in Deuteronomy 21 is that when there's a rebellious son who's a glutton and a drunkard who refuses to listen to the instruction of his parents, that they are to bring him out in the middle of the city And then everyone in the city there, the men specifically, are to pick up stones and are to stone him to death. Now, I have heard some folks at times read laws like that in the Old Testament and say, well, that's what we need today. That really straightened people out. Let me tell you, if we had that one today, I'd be dead. You wouldn't have a preacher. And you know what? You wouldn't be here either because most of y'all in this room would have got beat down by rocks a long time ago. Because we're rebellious people. And so that law was not given because God was saying, for the rest of time, I just want you to beat people with rocks if they don't obey and don't listen. That law was given in a context to the people of Israel during a time of rebellion. God knew that if His people didn't stop in their rebellion, they would become just like all the other nations around them. So He gave them very strict laws to follow as a church state. And the very simple reason that we don't adhere to all these civil laws today is because we're no longer a church state. The people of God are spread among nations throughout the world today. 
There are Christians in our nation. There are Christians throughout Asia and Africa, throughout all the continents. There are millions of believers spread around under all types of civil governments, following all types of civil laws. And so we are not bound as Christians to one set of civil laws in the Old Testament. We are bound as Christians to the rule of one king. And that king is our Lord Jesus. And so we as believers are to follow the law and the government that Christ has set up for us. But you'll notice in the New Testament, Christ does not establish a church state. In fact, this was very confusing to many of Jesus' followers. Perhaps you remember as Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and He's going there knowing that He's going to suffer and He's going to be crucified, His followers are very confused by this. In fact, they are asking questions like, okay, Jesus, uh, when you reign, when you're in charge, uh, which one of us is going to be in charge with you? They're going in thinking that Jesus is going to set up a church state and that they're going to rule here on earth. And, And it really just takes them way off guard when Jesus shows them, no, I'm going to establish a much greater kingdom than one in this world. I'm ultimately going to establish a new heaven and a new earth, an eternal kingdom, and I'm going to reign there forever. And so the reason that we don't adhere to all these civil laws today is because we don't have a church state anymore like they did in the Old Testament. In fact, these laws were to point us towards ultimately Christ, who would be our king, who would be our ruler. We also see in the Old Testament ceremonial laws. I think these are perhaps the ones that might come to your mind when you think about Old Testament law because the ceremonial laws were the laws about things you could eat and not eat. The ceremonial laws were about uh, sacrifices, how to make sacrifices. The ceremonial laws were about uh, cleansing the temple and ritual purity. And so, for example, don't buy a pork burger today. That would have been under the ceremonial law. Now let me make it clear. We're no longer under that law. So I don't know if I mentioned it yet or not. But you can buy pork burgers today and pork chops. And not just because we're not under the ceremonial law. Specifically in Acts chapter 10, God makes it real clear to Peter, you can eat pork now. And so you can be a faithful follower of God and you can eat pork. Because you're not under the ceremonial law. But the question then is, well what was the purpose of the ceremonial law to begin with? There is great confusion about this. In fact, you can go into the Christian bookstores today and you can find people who will propose to you, hey, here's God's diet plan for you. And they will have a Levitical eating code. And it will say things in there like, don't eat shrimp and don't eat pork. And, you know, honestly, that might be healthier. I mean, for some of you it might be healthier, but let's not get carried away here. But, but... The point of the ceremonial law and the Levitical eating code was not so that God's people would be physically healthier. The point of it was God was trying to teach His people about holiness. And this is how. God's people under the ceremonial law got up every morning with an understanding that here is a list of those things which are clean and here is a list of those things which are unclean. They went to the temple with the understanding that in order to go to the temple, this is what it looks like to be ritually clean. This is what it looks like to be unclean. They lived with an understanding that those who would be considered unclean, they couldn't even associate with. And what God was doing through this was teaching His people about Himself. 
He wasn't teaching His people that they could somehow be perfect on their own because if you read the law, you realize nobody could attain that standard. What God was doing was showing His people over and over again, here's what it looks like to be holy and here's what it looks like to be unholy, ultimately to teach them about Himself that He was holy and that we're not holy. And as a result, we have a need to be made holy. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. In fact, God gave His people under the ceremonial law a sacrificial system. And He would tell them, when you sin, when you disobey, when you're made unclean, here's what you need to do. And so there were all types of different sacrifices they could make. Sometimes they could make grain offerings. Sometimes they would make animal sacrifices and blood offerings. Those things were continually offered. In fact, what we see in God's Word is there was no final sacrifice in the Old Testament that God's people could offer. And so just think about this for a second. In a modern context, I remember talking to a young man years ago who who grew up in a church that taught you could never be secure in your salvation. They taught a works-based salvation. So what he was taught was that he had to have every sin confessed And he had to have no sin in his life to have any hope of going to heaven. And so he would say, the only time I felt any comfort or any security that I might go to heaven was right before I fell asleep at night. (laughs) Because then I thought, okay, I've finally confessed everything I've done. And then he said I'd have a bad dream. And well, that was shot, you know. (laughs) There was no security there. Now, just in case you're unfamiliar with the gospel, that's not what the gospel teaches. And in fact, we learn a lot about the gospel by reading the Old Testament, because even here we see a picture of how God saved His people, not because of what they had done, but because of who He was. And then He gives them this law to follow out of obedience as a saved group of people. And so what we see here is that in the sacrificial system, God was reminding His people over and over and over again of their need for a sacrifice for their sin because ultimately what He was doing was He was pointing towards Jesus. And so the ceremonial law was was intact so that people might look towards a better day and look towards the Gospel. And that's what the Gospel actually tells us. For example, in Colossians 2, In referring to the ceremonial law, Paul says this, These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So these continual sacrifices were to point towards one great sacrifice. The ceremonial law pointed to Jesus. The civil law pointed to Jesus. Once Jesus came, we no longer have to follow those laws. So what then does that say about this third category? Moral laws. Well, they're a bit different. Because moral laws are the righteous and eternal standard of our relationship with God and with others. Moral laws are those God gives us to tell us that which is right and that which is wrong. They reflect His very character, and as such, they don't change over time. Now, there is a difference. For example, in the Scripture, in the Ten Commandments, these are moral laws given to us. What we find is that they point us to Jesus, and I'll get to that in a second. 
And so in the Old Testament, people were under these laws trying to fulfill them. But in the New Testament, Jesus has fulfilled this for us. And so now we're called to walk in obedience to these things, not in order to be saved, but because Christ has already saved us. And that's very important to note. And that's what the moral law looks like. And so point two in your outline, we need to remember then the Ten Commandments are part of the moral law. In fact, the Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law. Jesus Himself speaks of the Ten Commandments often in the Gospels. In fact, He summarizes the Ten Commandments when He is asked at one point about what's the greatest commandment. And when Jesus responds to that, He says, you need to love God and you need to love others. Well, when you study the Ten Commandments, you find that the first four tell us how to love God. And the next six tell us how to love others. And so Jesus takes the moral law and He reiterates it in the New Testament. Because the moral law is still in place. We still need to follow these things. But not in order to be saved. Which is another important point. Point three there in your outline. The Ten Commandments are given to those that God has saved. They're given to those that God has saved. Back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Again, hear this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So here's the picture in Exodus 20. God does all the work. God is the one who comes to His people and He rescues them. So you don't see in the book of Exodus, God say to His people, well, hey, let's figure out a plan that's going to get you guys out of here. No, God comes and does all the work to deliver His people. And He even does it at a time when His people are grumbling and complaining. If you remember in our study of Exodus, God's people didn't necessarily like the way God was doing things. And so at one point, as God is bringing these plagues upon Egypt and upon the Egyptians, Pharaoh doesn't like it, and so he increases the burden on the Hebrews. And their response is, they blame God, and they blame Moses, and they're angry. And so what we see there is this picture that God saving His people had absolutely nothing to do with anything they'd done. And God reminds them of that here in verse 2, when He says, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So why is that important? Now, why is it important for us to note that the Ten Commandments are given to those God has already saved? Because friends, this is fundamental to your understanding as a Christian of how God's Word applies to you today. Meaning this, that we don't obey the Word of God in order to be saved. We obey the Word of God because we are saved. The Old Testament law actually shows us over and over again that apart from God doing the work within us, we can't obey the law. And so there were people in Jesus' day who took the Old Testament law, and this is a bit crazy, they actually added to it quite a bit. And they thought, well, if I do all this perfectly, then I am righteous before God. And so here comes Jesus, and Jesus shows them, oh, wait a second, you... you you are gravely mistaken to think you can do these things on your own. And so Jesus takes the moral law of the Old Testament and He actually raises the bar quite a bit. For example, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, I kind of mentioned this last week and want to come back to it this week. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to the people and He brings up quite a bit of the law. 
And in fact, he tells the people that he's not come to abolish it, but that he's actually come to fulfill it. And then he tells the people, if you change any of this, if you remove one thing from it, anyone who even relaxes the law one slight bit has condemned themselves. Now again, I think when Jesus is speaking here, he's speaking about these moral laws because that's exactly what he follows with. So for example, we know the sixth commandment is that you should not murder. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, pause here for a second. You may realize this morning that you can't perfectly keep the law, but maybe you feel pretty good about the Sixth Commandment. I'm just guessing. I don't need anybody to raise your hand if you have, but I'm just guessing nobody in here killed anybody, at least not today, maybe, on the way. I mean, that's just kind of the standard that's, that's in our heart. I mentioned this before in sharing the gospel with people. I'll often ask them a couple of questions. If you stood before God today and He said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to Him? And almost always, people immediately revert to their works, what they have done or what they've not done. And so, so often, people's response to that is, well, I've tried to live a pretty good life. I mean, I've never killed anyone. Now again, if, if you're sitting down having lunch with somebody and they tell you they've never killed anybody, does that comfort you? Hopefully a little bit, you know. Might be a different conversation if they said, well, I've killed only one person or two people, you know. That, that's kind of this standard. That, that's kind of something we have set in our hearts. You know, I might not be the best guy, but at least I've never killed anybody. So Jesus says, well, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And probably the people listening to Him go, that's right, we sure haven't. But then notice what he says. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And they're probably saying, well, that's right. They're a murderer. Judge them. But then notice what he says. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You ever called somebody a fool? Anybody? Let's just do this. Don't raise your hand if you've called someone a fool. See? In the first service I said, have you ever called somebody a fool? And there was a, a child who, I didn't hear them, but they said, no, I haven't. And I thought they said, yes, you have. And I said, that's right, you have. And I think they started crying. But anyways, <laughs> they needed the conviction, I'm sure. Uh, if you've ever called somebody a fool, you're a murderer? What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying, listen, you, you're not as good as you thought you were. <laughs> you thought you were pretty good. Have you ever called somebody a fool? Then friends, you deserve hell. Because while you may not have picked up a gun or a knife, you may have played out or at least hinted in your mind at well, it'd be a lot better if they weren't here. Or you may have watched the evening news and thought, you know what that person deserves. And in your heart, Jesus says, when you call somebody a fool, then you're looking at another person created in the image of God, an image bearer of God, and you're saying to them that they're a fool, that they're not worth what you are. You are murdering them in your heart, Jesus says. And it's not just... That commandment, he goes on. 
verse 27, he brings up the seventh commandment. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Now again, there's probably a lot of people who heard that and said, that's right, you shouldn't. In fact, you see other places in the Gospel where they find someone and catch them committing adultery and they're ready to stone them to death right there. And so again, probably they're feeling pretty good about themselves. But then Jesus drops this on them. He says, verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then as if he couldn't dig any deeper, listen to what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. (laughs) And so Jesus here says, if you've just looked on something and sinned, gouge your eye out. Now, there's a problem there though, isn't there? Because we can still sin if we're blind. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Well, there's a problem there too, isn't there? Because we can still sin without hands. (laughs) Because sin isn't just a matter of our eyes and a matter of our hands. What is sin a matter of? It's a sin is a matter of our hearts. You know what the Gospel teaches us? It very much says to us that we need to cut this heart out and we need a new heart. See, that's the message of the Gospel. It goes all the way back to creation where God creates Adam and Eve and He gives them everything they could ever want, need, or desire. And He gives them commands he gives them a commandment he said you can eat anything you want to eat but don't eat of this tree and so what do they do in their temptation and their rebellion they disobey the very command that god gave to them and they sin against god and because of that sin they are then removed from the presence of god friends that is what sin does to us it removes us from god's presence And so God removes them from the garden, but He gives them this great promise of hope that one day a Redeemer will come who will crush the enemy, who will make all things new. And even there in the garden, He talks about the Messiah that is to come. And so throughout the Old Testament, all these laws we have were there to remind people that they couldn't be righteous on their own. That they didn't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. That God's holiness shone on them and exposed their unholiness. And then Jesus comes along and says, oh, you thought you were doing pretty good. Let me remind you that you're not. But He gives them hope in this. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was the one who would then go to the cross and die for their sin. Die the death that they deserved and I deserve and you deserve. And in exchange would call them to repentance and to faith and would call them to walk in that faith. And so He gives us commands in the New Testament. God gave His people commands in the Old Testament not in order to save them because they couldn't save themselves, but that they might walk in these things once they had been saved and experienced the grace of God. See, what we ultimately see, see, and we'll end with this, point four, is that the Ten Commandments are given for our good. So often we look at the Old Testament law as this great burden on us. And friends, if you think you're going to be saved by obeying the Ten Commandments, then that is a burden on you. Because just when you start thinking you haven't killed anybody, Jesus says, well, if you've called them a fool, you have. And just when you think you haven't committed adultery, Jesus says, well, if you've had a lustful thought, you have. And so the law points us towards our need for Christ. 
And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be reminded of our need for Christ. But it's also a good thing because what God does for His people as He brings them out of Egypt is He says, listen, I haven't just brought you out of Egypt, but I'm going to take Egypt out of you and I'm going to sanctify you and I'm going to purify you and I'm going to help you walk in faith and in holiness. And so He's going to change them during this, this journey to the promised land. And friends, that's exactly what God's doing for you today. I mean, ask yourself this question. If you have truly experienced redemption and salvation, if you've truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ and He has saved you, then why didn't He just snatch you up to heaven in that very moment? I mean, you look around the world today. Is it so that you could experience more pain and suffering and sin and darkness? I mean, why didn't God just take you on up to heaven right in that moment of salvation. You know, he could have. I was reminded of this just this week. Excuse me, just last week. I was at the Kentucky Baptist Convention. I was hearing reports of, of churches throughout our commonwealth. I was, heard the story of one pastor. He's actually a young man I met as a student at Western. He was involved in our ministry there. He's now a pastor here in our commonwealth. Several Lord's Days ago, uh, he was preaching the Gospel. Uh, a lady came forward at the end of the service said she wanted to give her life to Christ. He went through the Gospel with her. She asked Christ to be our Lord and Savior. As he was introducing her at the end of the service, she collapsed and died. Moments after she gave her life to Christ, she died. So, so God most certainly could take you home in an instant after you become a believer. But that's not usually what happens. The question is why? Friends, perhaps God has a purpose for you here. And perhaps that purpose extends beyond your gratification and your desires and you filling your life with things that you just want and that are momentary and then pass. Perhaps God's plan is that He might grow you and I in holiness and Christ-likeness so that that day when He does take us home, whether that's moments after we become a Christian or decades after we become a Christian, that He might have prepared us for that which waits for us eternally. And so He gives us these commands because they're good. Deuteronomy chapter 10, he reminded people in the Old Testament of this. He said, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today is for your good. Friends, it's, it's a good thing to obey the commandments of God. It is not a burden in fact, we're reminded of that in 1 John 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And so my prayer for us as a church is that as we walk through these commandments, that we might see why it's a good thing that God says to us, we should have no other gods. Well, why it's a good thing that He says we should have no idols. Why it's a good thing that He says we shouldn't curse His name or take it in vain. Why, it's a good thing that He gives us Sabbath rest and calls us to obey our parents and calls us not to murder and not to commit adultery. And why He says we shouldn't steal. 
why it says we shouldn't bear false witness, why it says we shouldn't covet, that these aren't restrictions to be a burden on us, but as those who have been redeemed by Christ, these are good things for us. And I pray that we will grow in that knowledge, beginning with our understanding of who this God is who gives us these commands. Who this God is who says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so that's where we'll pick up next Lord's Day. And so between this day and that, I would encourage you to consider first and foremost, do you believe that you're going to stand before God one day and say, God, I have perfectly kept your law? Do you believe you're going to stand before God one day and say, well, God, I've done better than most? Are you trusting today that when you stand before God, it won't be your works that you're pointing to, but it'll be the works of Christ? The One who was perfect on our behalf. Are you trusting in Christ today? And if you are, then I want to encourage you to call others to do the same. Because friends, we live in a culture, we live in a society, and so often we live among churches where people know little to nothing of what it means to walk with Christ and obey His Word. Where even those who have once walked an aisle or memberships in churches, been baptized, they're living knowing nothing of what God calls them to do. And so our instruction is to live under this Word, not because it's a burden, but because it's good. So if you would stand and pray with me that we might do these things empowered by the Holy Spirit of God.